Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Talks with Toe. Today's guest is Cody Dunn, lecturer at Cal State Long Beach University and PhD candidate in Dr. Bernard Choi's lab. He's also an adept researcher in the medical imaging space, specifically doing research in something called laser speckle imaging. This type of imaging excels in capturing blood flow and could potentially help ENTs and physicians quantify how serious injuries are, especially burn injuries. Unfortunately, we did experience some technical difficulties, so we lost the intro recording, but all the interesting stuff is still here. Oh, one more thing. If you could help out the show by sharing with just one friend, it goes a long way. We appreciate it and hope you enjoy. I guess I'll pick up from... <laughs> yeah, where, I don't know where you dropped or where we dropped. Yeah, I think we dropped right around where you were talking about your uh, your internship to Caltech and how you were deciding to do a PhD. Okay. And then you were talking about Duke a little bit. So Okay, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, you know, I had this main EE focus, and so I really for grad school tried to apply to a bunch of BME programs because I really wanted to go in that direction. And I think it was a little bit hard kind of switching fields or switching gears, but I got to visit Duke. Um, that was pretty cool. And then I visited Irvine as well. And I think ultimately I just really want to stay on the West Coast. I liked what Irvine had to offer when it comes to, you know, startups, different things. They really sold me on some of those pitches. I went, oh, this seems cool. Applied innovation. What's that? Um, and so that's ultimately how I decided uh, to come to Irvine. Nice. Okay. So let me just, I guess, backtrack to your time at Long Beach. So you went to CSU Long Beach and you ended up double majoring. Is that correct? Or Yeah. So it was a double major, but back when I did it, it was kind of interesting because BME was actually through the EE department. So it was only a few extra classes. So it really, it wasn't too difficult if you did your electives right. So that's how I was able to get the double major, but my main focus was definitely EE undergrad. Okay, so um, when you were doing research at Caltech, um, was that mostly like electrical-based research or was it more like on the biology side of things? Like where did you find yourself in that, that space? Yeah, so at Caltech, the, so I did two summers. The first summer was a bunch of solar cells um, and different things like that. So I would say that was a lot more EE and physics and things like that. And then the second summer, um, I did a bunch of sort of computational modeling, um, a little bit more related to bio, but, but not a ton. So that was a bunch of MATLAB that summer. So I'd say my EE fundamentals really helped me for those internships, uh, but then you know, I don't know if they trans translated the best. Um, although everyone here was excited that I'd done research at Caltech. So in that sense, it, it did help, yeah. Nice, okay. And then when you came to UC Irvine, uh, kind of describe how you ended up choosing the lab you're doing now and maybe explain a little bit about what type of research your lab does. Yeah, so I initially came here and I thought, I really want to work with Dr. Zoran Nenadich. Um, I really want to do, you know, these brain-computer interfaces. I really like coding all the time. I did signal processing as my emphasis in undergrad, so I'm just going to go all in. And so I had a chance to rotate with him the first quarter, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I got to process a bunch of EEG signals. I got to use my MATLAB skills um, that I gained kind of throughout undergrad. And we get to the end of the quarter, and he goes, I think you should try another lab. I said, why? You know, I, I like your lab. He goes, no, I just think you should try it, you know, see what else you'd like. Um, and then he said, you know, if you ultimately do want to come back here, um, we probably have space for you. And so I 
said, well, then who do you recommend I try out? He said, well, I'm really good friends with Bernard Choi. And so I looked up some of uh, Bernard's work and I go, well, maybe I could do this. You know, this seems interesting. Um, I did like the BLI atmosphere. And so that was my second rotation. And I found that I really liked the mix of, you know, working on some hardware, some coding, um, you know, doing sort of a lot of different things. You know, I actually realized I didn't think I wanted to code all the time. Um, didn't want to do signal processing all the time. I liked learning some new skills. And so I thought then it was kind of a nice time to shift. And then I really did like the BLI atmosphere. Um, it is, okay. it is overseeing, um, BLI stands for the Beckman Laser Institute at uh, UC Irvine. And yeah. I guess you could describe what that means. <laughs> yeah, so it's the Beckman Laser Institute. And so the major focus is biophotonics. It's an interesting location because there is a medical clinic right there. And so a lot of the research is focused on translation. And, you know, we do try to build devices that can be used in the dermatology clinic right there. And it's cool because it is a nice community and you have all those great resources. It's not as cool because it is a little removed from campus sometimes so than walking, you know, to the different Gabe's events where I usually hang out with Chris. That's a bit farther. So for the most part, it's awesome. But it is, it's a little now, so you got you to get work at it. Yeah, yeah. Walking and biking. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, so um, I guess maybe you describe like um, what biophotonics research you're doing and um, like what specifically your project is, maybe the issue you're trying to address. Yeah, so, you know, I first started and, and we're the main core technology that I focus on was called laser speckle imaging. And that's just kind of a fancy term for what we really use it for blood flow imaging. And so it's superficial blood flow imaging. So about 500 microns deep. So you're seeing, you know, the epidermis and a bit of the dermis. And so if you can imagine, right, that probably has a lot of applications in dermatology. And it's pretty simple technology in that you can uh, use it with just a laser, you know, even a webcam to take your images, and then you process those images. And so we use that for blood flow imaging, but sort of my research has taken a little bit of a turn from standard wide field imaging, you know, which means you're imaging large areas and using this technology more for wearables. So, you know, something more similar to a pulse oximeter. Okay, nice. So like, uh, I guess when people are wearing these devices, like what are you, that you're monitoring blood flow, um, but I guess what is the reason why they would need to get that monitored and stuff like that? Yeah, so um, we've found uh, through some of our research that the signals based off laser speckle imaging have a better signal to noise ratio than some of the you know more traditional signals found in pulse oximetry. And so when I talk wearables, we're at those pretty early stages where it's 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 like a finger clip type device. Um, you know, we have we don't have any fancy Bluetooth wristwatch or anything yet. Uh, but the reason that's interesting, right, is because you know flow in the uh, peripheral extremities right, can tell you a lot actually about your central extremities, right? And I think. You know, even with some of the recent Apple Watches have really been demonstrating that, you know, they're trying to use Apple Watches to track asthma, a, you know, AFib, a bunch of different things like that. And so we think, you know, if we maybe have this better signal, we can do some of those things better. Of course, there's all, there's always trade-offs, right? Okay, yeah, that's, that's crazy. So, like, uh, maybe let's 
like walk through a little bit of like the physics like we'll get a little bit more technical here and like see like how how exactly are you imaging like blood flow and what exactly are you measuring for you know, those images like so kind of walk into like the basics of how that works yeah so the basics of how that work is we shine the laser light the laser light will you know at a certain wavelength that's coherence right and in this term we'll think of light as waves and it's going to interact and bounce off of your red blood cells the speed of your red blood cells um, will determine the amount of blurring of the pattern that comes back so anyone that listens to this if you shine a laser light just onto a surface you'll see that it actually has a bunch of bright and dark spots and so when the light interacts with something that's moving those become blurry and so it's less apparent those spots and so we can use that to track uh, the blood flow so basically the speed of whatever is moving and so you know your red blood cells they actually pulse right with your heartbeat Right, which makes sense, you know, your heart beats, your blood pulses throughout your body. And so we can actually see uh, those changes kind of like an arterial waveform using our technique uh, from your finger. Okay, that's crazy. So can you actually like, so you can measure obviously beats, but can you measure like blood pressure from that? Or can you somehow get- So we are not there yet. I know that's the uh, end all be all, right? For a lot of different technologies um, is, you know, this non-invasive blood pressure. Uh, we could try to do a bunch of correlations and machine learning. That's not really what our lab emphasizes. You know, I don't, I don't think I'd be the best for that. And so we're looking at, at other applications. Uh, there are definitely people that have looked at this signal and, and want to do things like that. Um, I'm just, I, I don't know if it's the best signal for it. it. It's hard to say. We just haven't done research on it, but yeah, no, uh, that's definitely been discussed. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are mostly focused, I guess, on like, uh, like oxygen saturation too and yeah so ox so it's kind of that we're looking at how can we combine those measurements so if you use multiple wavelengths right so two different colors of light then you can get oxygenation and then we can also get this flow measurement and so you know how can you combine those and what can those two measurements really tell you about a person's well-being is is, is our you know big interest okay yeah that's super cool i mean uh obviously that's probably a lot of physics um is there like a specific like type of light that you guys are using? So obviously lasers are, there's the lasers that everyone thinks of that you can like, you know, use a pan laser. And like so it's really funny. We, the lasers we use a lot of times, right? You can buy these big fancy lasers and your measurements are better, but those laser pointers, some laser pointers people probably have are better than some of the lasers in my devices. And that's because ultimately when you're building some sort of device or some sort of wearable, it has to be inexpensive. And so, you know, you can do laser speckle with just a laser pointer at home. Um, there's actually a pretty interesting publication. It's just laser speckle, I think, with, you know, a standard laser pointer from home, and they used a webcam, and they were, they were able to get pretty good results. So it, it's, it's, not, it's not too different. Um, when it comes to colors of light, you'll generally want uh, something red. So it'll be about you know, 660 nanometers. Um, for the wavelength and then you'll and so that'll be in more in tune with the deoxyhemoglobin and then if you want something in the near infrared maybe like you know 850 nanometers um, or a lot of pulse oxes will use something like 940 nanometers uh, then that'll be a little bit more in tune to the oxyhemoglobin right 
saturation. So then if you can monitor those two and the changes of them, those two, you can get oxygen saturation. So those are sort of the colors we use, but a red laser pointer, yeah, that, that's right <laughs> by that 660. Nice, okay, so on your day-to-day -day tasking, like um, you said you do some coding, like what is the, the coding aspect of your issues look like? Is it mostly algorithmic? Are you kind of just looking, like is there other pre-built like packages that you use? Yeah, so uh, definitely image processing, obviously, right? So we collect all these images, we process them. Um, I still do get to use some of the signal processing techniques I learned because a lot of times, you know, if you're trying to look at these pulsatile signals, you don't really need the image itself, right? So you'll convert that image into a single point value and you'll get some sort of waveform over time. Um, so yeah, definitely we do a lot of the coding in MATLAB. So the, the packages are nice, MathWorks is, is awesome uh, for looking up different functions and stuff. Uh, I'd say that's the majority of my coding. Sometimes we are trying to apply, you know, different optics techniques. I mean, there's, there's Monte Carlo modeling involved as well. I don't do as much of that as I did at the beginning of my PhD. Um, I'd say that's the majority of coding. And then probably, as you know, you know, during a PhD, making figures and different things <laughs> like that, <laughs> which takes way more time than I'd like to admit. Uh, Oh that, yeah, that can also. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I spent like at least a solid hour and a half just generating a figure today, and it looks like crap still. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely, if it's, you know, if I'm not going for a nature publication, and I think I can make a good figure in MATLAB, I'll go for it, and then maybe some modifications in PowerPoint. But there are definitely people in my lab that are using, you know pretty fancy stuff. So I think, yeah, I'm more on your end where I go, I think this gets the message across. The data is there as a, you know, as a fair representation of what I did. I think it's repeatable. You know, I think this is a good figure. That, that's, <laughs> those are my main goals. But no, I, I, I think it's something I could definitely work on. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the things that, um, you know, most people when they start a PhD program don't realize that like, like when you're writing publications, like the actual writing part is like only half the time. The other half the time is just like, okay, I wrote everything. Now I need to like hit the figures that describe what I was talking about in my actual writing. And that's just way longer. And then the third half of time is rewriting it after all the feedback you get. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Yeah, I can't decide whether I like it when the feedback is just these comments that require you to change a whole section or they've basically rewritten the whole section and so you have to change the whole section. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, how is, uh, I guess, you're looking at graduating probably in the next like year or two, right? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think so. Definitely 2021 is, is the goal. Um, I won't rush to graduation, right, depending on the, <laughs> the job scenarios and you know, where, where I am in my research, uh, but that, that's the plan at the moment, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. So um, I guess maybe describe a little bit about uh, your, I guess, extra research activity that UC Irvine. Obviously, you've been involved in games a lot, but uh, you also teach quite a bit too, from my understanding. And how yeah. did you land in that area, and what is it like to be teaching at a university level? Yeah. So uh, last semester, spring semester, I was fortunate enough to teach a course at uh, Cal State Long Beach. Um, so I basically, I, I gave a presentation on my research um, and I think they, they enjoyed it enough and then they needed uh, 
when the class is filled. And so they reached out to me and um, you know, I was able to talk to Bernard and, and get his, his blessing for that. And so I was able to teach at Long Beach. Um, and then I taught uh, a course this uh, summer at Irvine. And then now I'm teaching again at Long Beach. Um, so it, I, I do like it. It's been interesting because, you know, the first bit of my semester for my first semester at Long Beach, it was in person. And then I had that transition to online. And, you know, I think figuring out ways to get people engaged over Zoom, um, especially engineers, <laughs> I think is something that I've really been working on. And so I, I hope I'm gradually getting better at it because, you know, figuring out, you know, how do I use these breakout rooms to get people talking to each other? Mm -hmm. You know, how can I get people, even if they're a bit shyer, to maybe want to turn on their webcam? You know, I don't make it mandatory or anything, but some of the stuff like that, I think, has been um, a challenge. And obviously trying to do that, making sure I still do, you know, my full, my full PhD work. Um, it, 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 it's a challenge, but I think potentially during a pandemic is a good time to have all these extra activities because... You know, I think it's nice to be, to be busy um, when you can't do some of the other things you might normally do at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something I'm running into quite a bit with, like, um, I mean, I'm teaching a genetics course at UC Irvine this, this coming quarter, and, uh, you know, that's, those courses are typically, like, on a normal, uh, you know, semester quarter is, like, you know, a couple hundred students, like, you have, like, 460 students or something, so you know, you have a pretty large teaching team and then getting like that many students engaged consistently and also making sure that like all the students are actually learning the material is like kind of a daunting task when you think about it. <laughs> so how many people in your class? Uh, well, I'm in charge of like uh, three discussion sections, which are about 40 people each. Oh my goodness. So it's almost like I'm I'm in charge of like an entire lecture on my own because like you know in in engineering departments engineering departments are typically smaller right so like uh that's like almost probably like an entire year level of like the biomedical engineering <laughs> department so like uh but you know biology is kind of a, a larger school usually because people typically do like molecular bio or like you know stuff pre-med um so yeah that's like a pretty large course and you know, I, I highly doubt that everyone's going to show up every week, but like also like in Zoom, it's like very easy to just not show up. Like I'm not going to be sitting there like counting squares or anything. So it's like, yeah. So for, for my students, I, I do require, I do keep track of attendance and participation. And the reason I do that is just because I found that if the students, like I don't necessarily care if the students there, if they really are grasping all the material and different things. But I found that if I don't require it, then students that maybe really do need to come to class don't come to class. And so that, that's why I do it. Um, is then I figure, okay, this is some easy credit to these people's grade. And my class right now is 24 students. So I think it's also easier to keep track. Whereas <laughs> I can't imagine you keeping track at all these different discussions. Yeah, I'll probably just like open up like the participant window and just like highlight everyone's name. <laughs> I don't okay. know possible <laughs> screenshot the names. So. Yeah, but that's a that's yeah, that's like a challenge. It's like when you're managing that course and you're also trying to stay consistent with like, you know, the rest of the teaching staff and their discussions. So um I think it's a lot of challenges, but it's pretty cool to be able to 
think of these new ways because obviously education is probably going to be very different after all of this. And, um, you know, I think there are some things that were good about the way we used to do education, but there's definitely a lot of things that were not the best, <laughs> probably. I have found that, you know, for my classes, it seems like some students, they do enjoy the online experience. Some students really dislike the online experience. It seems to be this pretty, this pretty large range. You know, it does take off the burden of having to drive to class, to be there in person, that sort of thing. But then it also, you know, there's this additional burden now of, do I even have proper Wi-Fi, you know, to right. things? So I, I think depending on the student, you know, they're going to prefer one thing or the other is what I found. I am fortunate for my classes, you know, I, because I'm the only uh, teacher for the class and there's, there's no other sections or anything that I don't, I don't at least have to sync up my stuff. It sounds like the way you do. So I, I kind of get to make the curriculum and different things, but that sounds even more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we can solve uh, physics challenges, but you know, solving people challenges is a whole nother thing. So. They, they, yep, you'll, you'll always, every class is a new class and every class, you know, might be a bit testing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, well, I guess another thing I want to ask you is, um, what is your, what is your outlook graduating? Like in terms of wanting to be a professor, like, do you plan on doing a postdoc maybe, or do you plan more on looking for jobs? I think you kind of mentioned it already, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, for me, uh, we're we've been coming out with you know some new ip recently and so if the ip does seem to work out well um you know then potentially i'd be interested in pursuing a startup um so i think that's goal number one but i do understand you know there there's so many different factors that play into whether you really do have a reasonable chance of success in that or not and i think you do have to be realistic with yourself so i think that's the first goal um, and then I'll kind of look around for industry jobs. Um, if I don't find a great fit, then maybe, you know, I, I would consider postdoc. I, I really want something that remains very intellectually stimulating. And so I think finding the job that does that is going to be, is going to be important for me. So finding, finding that good fit, you know, I think PhD, the PhD has been pretty fun so far. Yeah. yeah I think that's a, a pretty big thing that I, realize that most people who are, well, if you're in a PhD program, you probably want the intellectual stimulating aspect of things because you, you want to learn things that are not just like simple. But um, yeah, I think that's like super important. That's definitely something I'm looking for. Um, are, are there like any, I guess, recent like things you've been researching that have kind of like excited you about like, or just like you found really interesting that, uh, I don't know, that could pertain to your research or could not, but. Uh, what, what do you, what do you, like in relationship to just in the field or, or my. Yeah, just my, like in the field, like um, obviously biomedical engineering is a huge field, but. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think it's really, um, I think it's been pretty interesting to just see the development of consumer wearables. I think that's really what's gotten me interested. You know, companies are pushing for, as you mentioned earlier, non-invasive blood pressure and you know, valence cell on different companies. So they make it a little earpiece uh, for non-invasive blood pressure. Um, you know, they're pretty good. And I think that this sort of continuous monitoring, especially as we've seen during times like this, when you can't 
visit the doctor. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it is really the next wave of technology. You know, we're used to in the past, we go to the doctor maybe once or twice a year and you get these sort of spot checks on your health, right? But really your life is continuous and you have different moments of stress and things like that. And I think continuous monitoring, it, it really is the future, but you know, how do we do that accurately? How do we do that so that people aren't overwhelmed by these metrics, right? Because we don't want these metrics to cause them additional stress, um, things like that, you know? So I think that you know, it'll be interesting to see how the new you know, series of Apple Watch does and if people like all these additional health features. Um, but I think that's really kind of what's excited me and it does relate to the field. And then I think for my personal research is interesting because, you know, can we make those fundamental signals better, right? You know, people, they've tracked themselves with these Apple Watches and a lot of times, you know, a good portion of times it's accurate, but then you do have that percentage of times it's not. And can you reduce that, right? So that people continue to trust your device, so doctors continue to trust it. Um, you know, and so I think potentially our technology could have some sort of play in that, you know, in the maybe distant future. Um, but I, I think that's been really, really interesting for me. Yeah, that's like super important for people. Well, just like chronic health in general. Like, yeah, like there's a lot of, a lot of the studies that we do for like, you know, stress or like sleep deprivation and stuff, they're all like, they're usually retrospective, which means like, you know, we go back at a population of people and like basically just survey them and like ask them like, do you feel stressed? Like, um, and that's how a lot of the studies are done. And like, you know, when you think about it, like that, that could be like, that in itself probably has a lot of noise in the data because you're just like asking people if they were stressed and you don't know if they're actually answering you based off like a time that you're referencing or if they're just answering you like in that moment how they feel, you know, or like how you word the question, you know, really matters. And that type of stuff is like super interesting because with continuous monitoring, like you said, like you could actually see, you know, trends of like, uh, even within a year, maybe, because like you don't really have people doing that in most studies. So. No, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, can we get devices that you've decided to change your diet? It tells you whether your diet's working, you know, a lot earlier than before you just see whether you've lost weight or before you notice that you changed your diet, but now you feel more tired for some reason, right? So I think devices that can really track that, you know, and then from a physiological perspective, tell us, you know, hey, you know, when you go to bed earlier, when you go to bed at 11 p.m. each night, you seem to be more refreshed when you wake up in the morning, right? That type of stuff, I think, is going to be key going forward. But, you know, the accuracy, I'm, I'm not sure is, is quite there yet. And so I think our job as engineers is to, to get that accuracy um, without ignoring, you know, and ignoring convenience, right? Because if a device isn't convenient, people generally won't wear it. it it's just, it needs to just kind of seam, seamlessly enter into their lives and, you know, provide Im important feedback to them, right? Something that's important to us might not be important to the average consumer. And so. Yeah. And also like feedback that is understandable too. Like that's another huge part of engineering that I'm also kind of really interested in that stuff is like, how do you display information that you know as a scientist we can look at graphs and like sit there and like pick apart like exactly the data that we need to understand it but you gotta admit that like a lot of scientific publications like those graphs are just like 
absolutely bonkers sometimes. <laughs> oh, I mean, reading just the figure caption that's a page in itself, I think, is very difficult. And yeah, I know. I think, you know, you, you and I are probably pretty number oriented, right? So we want to see our number over time. Whereas, you know, I've talked to other friends and that's maybe, you know, in, in some customer inter interviews and different things, that's less interesting to them. You know, they just want to know, should I be doing something different, you know, and, and, and how does your device tell them that? And how do you make a device that works for maybe both types of people? Um, I think it's pretty, pretty complex. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested to see how the wearables go to, especially, I mean, Apple's been pushing pretty hard for it, but I mean, they're not the only company. Um, it's the watch is always an interesting one because I mean, the wrist is like, not exactly the best. <laughs> the signals, the signals are not generally amazing from the wrist. Um, at least based on some of my own measurements, you know, maybe these companies are doing things a lot better. Um, I, I do have interest, you know, some of the companies with the different rings and things that they're coming out with, right? So there's Aura Ring, and, and you know, I've talked to some people that think they get they get a better signal. I haven't tested this stuff, so I don't know. But you know, maybe something like that where you know, you're just getting a better signal and then working with, right. You know, generally you get some sort of signal and then you probably, you apply a bunch of algorithms and you get some sort of output. And then I, as a user, you know, I just see whatever this output is, but if that fundamental signal is a bit better, a bit stronger, then the algorithms work a little bit better and you can kind of go from there. So it'll be interesting to see where the technology goes. You know, are people willing to wear chest straps all the time? Would people wear headbands with sensors all the time? You know, if, my AirPods, for example, which I don't have, but if my AirPods, you know, <laughs> monitored all that stuff for me, you know, I, maybe I might wouldn't mind wearing them all the time. So I think finding those locations for the best signals and then obviously, right, the watch is nice. It is nice because, you know, you can read your emails, messages. There's a whole bunch of other features that I think as biomedical engineers, we sometimes like to ignore maybe, you know, that a lot of people just like their watch because you know, they get text messages and stuff on it. So, yeah. That's probably most people. But look, I can uh, take a picture from here. Yeah, I rarely, you know, I, I, I have, I have a really old Apple Watch, and I, I rarely look at my heart rate. I mostly use it to see if I receive messages and stuff. So, you know, I think finding that nice balance um, will be important, and it's a big problem. And I don't know if it's a problem that I personally want to be solving, but. <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there. The display thing is really interesting because I talk to different clinicians and different clinicians want different things in their displays. So even just finding the display that works for everything, you know, is hard in itself. Yeah, it's like, the, the other problem with like watches is that like, you know, the display is pretty small. So you don't exactly have like an enormous amount to work with to begin with. And especially for, some of the people who actually might need the continuous monitoring more like elderly people like typically those people also have declining eyesight too so that's like a whole another thing that you have to think about is like accessibility issues are pretty much always existent i feel like and especially with yeah. elderly individuals like um a lot of times implementing these like technology technology-based solutions are sounds good in principle but when you're having to also explain how the like the fundamental technology works to like older individuals, that's a whole nother hurdle that you have to come get over. Oh, it, it, yeah, no, that's definitely a big hurdle. 
you know, if someone maybe is developing dimension, different things, having some sort of app, you know, how much is that, is that going to help them? Are they constantly using their phones? I think things will definitely trend in those directions, but I think the other issue is, you know, who do you send all this data to? When you do have this continuous monitor, you have these just massive amounts of data. And do you, you know, send their doctor a Bluetooth notification? I doubt doctors want to see Bluetooth notifications every 10 seconds, um, you know, that their patients aren't doing well. Do you send it to a caretaker? Does that person just have their data? And then, you know, there's also all those privacy issues as well. So it's a big field. I think there are a lot of hurdles, but I, I, I'm hoping that we can do it properly. I think, you know, the right people and good intention people, uh, we can hopefully get there such that it's, it's beneficial, right? That, I think that's the reason we're developing these technologies is to, to help people ultimately. And so figuring out the best ways to do so, I think is going to be important. Okay. In the last 15 minutes or so, I kind of wanted to get uh, a little bit more of your take on how, um, on why you, I guess, enjoy laser technology specifically um, maybe also maybe try to break down like how lasers work fundamentally in a way that people can understand because I think a lot of people know what a laser is but they don't really know how it's different from you know like the light in my background here or something yeah yeah so the main difference is that you know the light in your room is an incoherent source and then the light from the laser is a coherent source and so what that means is that the light in your room is a bunch of different wavelengths combined together. And so that's how you get this white light or this broadband light. And then basically in a laser, the difference and the main difference is that uh, you're getting this sort of narrow band light. So you're getting coherent light. And so that light is all at one wavelength. And so basically you know, everything that comes out of that light should look like nice sinusoids aligned together so in theory that that is uh, kind of the main difference between the light in the background um, the reason that i got into lasers was you know as a kid i just really liked legos and different things and now i go into lab and i like to joke that i'm just playing with way more expensive legos <laughs> And so, you know, electric circuits, you have resistors and different things and you get to build stuff. And then I also get to put in these little lasers, you know, we have these little cameras that are the size, you know, they're smaller than, you know, like the tip of a finger. Um, and so I, I really like that aspect of it. So I wouldn't say that it was actually the lasers or optics that really got me into it. I think it was just the fact that, you know, I do, I do still like building technologies and then you know, it definitely is a really big budding field too. So I, I will not deny, right, that that played a little bit, you know, into my interest. I thought that, you know, biophotonics is sort of this big growing field. Um, I think the money spent, um, Bruce Tromberg usually shows some slides on this, but basically, you know, it's, it's starting to overtake in, in uh, value and different things, MRI stuff. So, mm. you know, it, it's really a growing field. Um, so I, I like that aspect as well, but you know, I thought I thought I thought it was cool uh, playing <laughs> playing around with these toys. Uh, All right, maybe uh, last question: What is the most expensive thing you, or maybe I'll ask two questions: the most expensive thing in your lab, and then most expensive thing in your lab that you've broken? Oh, okay. Um, these are some good ones. So, 
uh, most expensive thing in our lab right now. I'm trying to think. I mean, I have it worked a little bit. Uh, Dr. Kuze uh, in our lab, he's working, he has, a, he has a device that I took some measurements with recently. And I think that's about, you know, over a hundred thousand dollar device. So that was, a, this is, that was, that was a fun to play around with. Um, the most expensive thing I have broken. So definitely, I mean, I pretty recently broke this little Vixel, which is a, uh, what is it? vertical cavity surface emitting laser. That was like a couple hundred bucks. So that, that, that's not a super big deal. Um, in Korea, we unintentionally broke this device. I'm not sure how much it was worth, but I think that might've been a few thousand. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then, oh, there's this little, uh, I unintentionally broke some dials on the beam combiner too. <laughs> that was unfortunate so the diodes themselves are not that expensive but i guess the time and effort it took to make the little beam combiner it's quite an expensive little thing so that's probably the, i don't know the labor it's hard to factor that in because it's not like a normally sold device but maybe if it was commercial like 10k <laughs> so i've definitely made some some boo-boos i think the important thing is that you know going forward one, you, you know, you unintentionally, a lot of my stuff has to do with the circuitry, you know, so if, if I mess up the wiring or different things like that, or, you know, I'm trying to push a diode to its max power and things like that. Yeah, you, you can short stamp in or Yeah, it, it, it's quite easy to, to make those, those sort of mistakes. Um, I think the important thing is, one, you're not doing it repeatedly. Um, and then sometimes, you know, sometimes diodes just do go out. And then I don't know. Maybe I'm just saying that, and I still am making some key error, but I, I think sometimes that happens. I think the important thing is that, you know, you were really trying to do science. You you were being relatively careful, and then, you know, mis mistakes do happen in the lab, and so hopefully your PI is somewhat forgiving, but no, I've definitely had my, my share of mishaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, guess, I totally forgot, but, like, what what exactly were you doing in Korea? Um, that was probably about a year ago, right? Yeah, so uh, we have collaborators in Korea, and so we get to visit. And so I went on one trip that was 12 days, another trip that was 22 days. And so basically, you know, they're helping us with some of the translation of our technologies. And so they're a lot better at, I'd say, the electronics than I am. I'm in some instances better at the optics. And so getting that collaboration going can help with miniaturization, miniaturization of devices. Um, they do have clinics there as well that you can potentially test devices in. And so um, that's, that's what I was there for. And then I have been to a conference or two there and you know, they do take you around. So it, it's a really, really cool experience. So I've been very fortunate. Hey, well, uh, I think that's a pretty good place to stop. So I guess the last thing I'd ask is uh, how exactly can people find your work? Um, if they are interested in looking up your, like, you know, your publications, stuff like that, or just more about your lab, where would they find you? Yeah, so uh, I do have a Google Scholar account. So I think if you look up Cody E. Dunn and then Speckle, uh, that's the way to find it. Because I, I do have some publications, some citations, but 
don't think I'm the first Cody or the first, definitely not the first Dunn. Uh, there's even just a really big Dunn in my field. So I think that'd be one of the easiest ways. And then we do have a lab uh, website as well. So um, if you go to Bernard or Dr. Bernard Choi's uh, you know, webpage through UCI, you can get to some of our lab work as well. And our lab definitely does a lot of different things. I'm, I'm one section. We have optical clearing work and all sorts of other work. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Cody. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Stop. Thanks for tuning into this podcast. Be sure to head over to iTunes. Give us that five-star rating. You can also find us on Spotify and Google Play. Talks with Toe is written and produced by Chris Toe.